The sermon text is from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it almost feels cliche to say this, but it is like a huge privilege to be back here. You guys are, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but so supportive of F- Focus Baltimore and our ministry. Uh, in case you don't know, Patrick helps teach at our Gilman meeting. It seems the weeks we have Chick-fil-A and Patrick teaches, there's over like 75 kids there. I don't know what's the bigger draw, but in my mind it would be Patrick. Um, it, I really mean that's kind of like a home away from home. I, I'm to the point now where we walk in and I know at least a handful of people's names and and it, it, it certainly does feel like home. And um, if you have a, a Bible or a Bible app, I know that's a thing these days, uh, and, it, and you can keep Psalm 110 open, that would be a huge help to me. I'll, I'll be referring to the a text a, a, a bit, and um, it would be great if we could look at it together. Um, and um, over the next 20 minutes, we'll be unpacking Psalm 110, and I thought I'd begin with an observation. I wonder if you've ever heard somebody say, I'm glad that Christianity works for you, but it's not for me. Uh, I I do have the great privilege of working with middle school and high school students, and I hear this fairly often. And whenever I get a response like that after trying to explain Christianity, I know that something has gone terribly wrong. Uh, Either I failed to explain Christianity to to that person, or the person has failed to hear a word I've said. But somewhere along the line, there's been a total breakdown in communication. When people say, I'm glad that Christianity works for you, but it's not for me, they fail to understand what Christianity is all about. They seem to think that Christianity is a matter of preference, kind of like ice cream flavors. I prefer vanilla, you prefer chocolate, I prefer Jesus, you prefer something else. There's no wrong or right choice, it's just a matter of preference. And that seems to be the way many people approach religion today. The questions they ask go something like this. Do I like what it teaches? Does it work for me? Do I prefer it to other options? And I would very respectfully say those are all the wrong questions to ask about Christianity because Christianity is not a matter of preference. It's a matter of fact. Either it happened or it didn't. Either it describes reality or it doesn't. Either it's true or it's not. Now, if I were to say to you, Larry Hogan is my favorite governor of Maryland, then we're talking about preferences. And you could legitimately say that may be true for you, but not for me. But if I were to say to you, Larry Hogan is the governor of Maryland, well, either that's true or it isn't. But it most certainly isn't a matter of preference. And if, if someone said at this point that may be true for you, but that's not true for me, well, either they're out of touch with reality or they're plotting treason against the state of Maryland. Now, the same is true of Christianity. One of the central cr- claims of Christianity is that Jesus is king of the whole entire world. 
Now, either that's true or it isn't. But a claim like that can't be a matter of preference. And I say this humbly, but it's nonsense to to make a claim like that. That it may be true for you, but not true for me. Now, the New Testament would have us believe that Jesus is the king described here in our psalm, in Psalm 110. And the writers of the New Testament turn to this psalm over and over again to explain just what kind of king Jesus really is. Now, the first thing to notice is how the psalm begins. Have a look down at the very first verse. It begins like this. A psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, just to be clear, there are two lords in this verse. The first refers to God, and the second refers to Jesus. The first refers to God, and the second refers to Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus using this verse to show his enemies just what kind of king he is. He is the kind of king that even David would call my Lord. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, and I know most of us know this, you'll quickly see that David is a very big deal in Israel's history. He is a king after God's own heart. And David becomes the standard by which every king is judged. Good kings are like David, bad kings are not. Now, what kind of king must Jesus be for even David to bow the knee and call him my Lord? When Jesus points to Psalm 110 and claims to be this king, everyone around him is floored by the magnitude of, of this claim. And, I, and, and guys, just as a brief aside, as I've jumped into this psalm, I humbly realize that my view of Jesus tends to be far, far too small. Now, in fairness, I think we have a hard time understanding this because the Western world did away with absolute monarchies a long time ago. We, we replaced them with democracies, for better or for worse. And I know that we won't be spending eternity in heaven voting on things because Jesus doesn't rule over the democratic republic or God or the constitutional monarchy of God. He rules over the kingdom of God and his rule is absolute. Now it's fitting that the G20 summit was this week, but if today's world leaders were were to come face to face with Jesus, they would have no choice but to kneel before him and acknowledge him as the greatest. That's what it means for Jesus to be the King of King and Lord of Lords. And if we have difficulty picturing them dropping to their knees and bowing before Jesus, then I dare say our view of Jesus is far too small. Now the second thing I'd like to notice is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Have a look at verse 1 again, if if you would. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's amazing how many times the New Testament alludes to the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. I think it's over 30 times. And if I had to sum up what the New Testament Testament makes of this, it's a picture of supreme and undisputed authority. The only person that gets to sit at the right hand of God is Jesus. It's a position given to him by God, and he's the only one who sits at God's right hand. It's a position that his enemies are forced to acknowledge at the end of verse 1 as they're placed under his feet, and at the end of verse 2 
as he rules in their midst. And in verse 3, it's a position that his people joyfully acknowledge as they offer themselves freely to him. But here's the point. If Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, then he is king, whether people like it or not. His enemies will hate it. His people will love it. But the way people feel about it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't change the fact that he is king. This means that everyone will have to answer to the king whether they like it or not. They cannot opt out. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. His rule extends over the whole world. And if people want to opt out, where will they go? Now, um, a friend of mine from high school finally understood this about a year ago, and it upset him. And I remember he said to me, why do I have to answer to Jesus? He was, he was pretty flustered. He's an old friend, so I didn't feel too guilty. Um, and, you know, what right does that man, he would emphasize that, that, you know, man have to judge me? And I, and I have to say I was quietly encouraged when I got this reaction because it, it means to me he's finally understanding what the Bible has to say about Jesus. My friend understood that the question of Jesus' kingship isn't a matter of preference. Either he is king or he isn't. And if he is the king, then he's the king whether my friend or anyone likes it or not. And he has every right to judge you and me. That's what it means for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of God. He has been given supreme and undisputed authority. Now, in the following verses, Psalm 110 shows us that King Jesus exercises authority in one of two ways. In verse 4, we see that King Jesus rules as priest. And in, verse five to se- in verses 5 to 7, we see that King Jesus rules as a judge. Now, it seems to me that Psalm 110 is giving us a choice between two types of king. Jesus is the king whether we like it or not, but which king will people meet? Let's have a look at verse 4, which shows King Jesus ruling as the high priest. Have a look, if you would. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, unfortunately, we won't have, a time, we won't have time to talk about Melchizedek this morning, but there are two questions we need to ask at this point. First, why do we need a high priest? And second, what does it mean for Jesus to be the high priest? So let's look at the first question. Why do we need a high priest? We need one because we're in trouble with God and we need someone to turn away his anger. That was the job of the priest in the Old Testament. Whenever God became angry with the wickedness of the people, the priest stepped in to bail them out. His job was to speak on behalf of the people and turn away God's anger. And just to be clear, God's anger isn't like a fly-off-the-handle-lose-your-temper kind of anger. Uh, we've all seen that anger. I know I have with young kids. Uh, it's, it's ugly. It's dysfunctional. Uh, but God's anger is a righteous anger. It's his settled personal hostility against all that is wrong with the world, against the homicides in, in Baltimore that we, that we prayed about. It's the kind of anger you, you and I feel when we read about bombings or mass shootings, or people being treated wrongly, and the list goes on and on. 
The reason we need a high priest is that God is angry with us, and God is angry with us because we are rebels against his king. Now, have you, have you ever said to yourself, quietly, I guess, internally, I, I want to run my life my way without answering to anyone? I know I have. The trouble is this is rebellion against the king, and Jesus has the right to tell us how to live our lives and that we should live his way, not our way. This is what it means for Jesus to be the king. But never mind the fact that his way is much, much better than our way. The fact is we hate the idea of surrendering surrendering our self-rule. We want to be the ones calling the shots, and that makes us rebels against the king. And in verse 1, it says that the enemies of the king will be placed under his feet. It's a position of total defeat and utter humiliation. So people are in desperate need of a high priest because they need someone to turn away God's anger. We need one to speak on our behalf, and without one, people are, are lost. But here's the wonderful news, is that Jesus is our high priest. Now, why, why is that such amazing news? Because Jesus is a much better priest than all the priests that came before him. You see, the priests in the Old Testament, as, and if, if you read, you probably know, um, were flawed for two reasons. And first, they were rebels themselves, which disqualified from speaking on anyone's behalf. You know, why should God, why should God listen to them if they're just as bad as everyone else? And second, they kept dying. So even when you had a reasonably good priest, you knew it wouldn't last. But look down at verse, look down at verse 4. God swears an oath to Jesus that he will be a priest forever. This is what it means when Jesus turns away God's anger. He does it forever. And when Jesus speaks on our behalf, we can be sure that God will listen to him. Why? Well, look at how verse 4 begins. God has sworn it and he will not change his mind. Now, imagine for a second you're in the high court of heaven and you're being tried for treason against the high king. If you could pick one person to represent you, who would it be? Now, some of you might work in law, I'm not sure, so you know that, who the top lawyers would be. But imagine the person who stands up to speak on your behalf is kind of a wet-behind-the-ears summer intern who looks like it could be your kid brother, and how would you feel? Now, if my brother stood up to defend me, my heart would sink. No offense, Jeff, but there's just too much at stake. Well, here's the best part about having Jesus as our high priest. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. If there's one person in the universe who has God's ear, it's Jesus. And I can't think of anyone I'd rather have defending me on the last day. And what will Jesus say in our defense? Now, even for Jesus, this is going to be a tough one because we are so obviously guilty of rebellion against the king. And there must be a penalty paid for the wrongs that we have done. I mean, if a judge lets a convicted murderer go free, how do we feel? Outraged. It's a travesty of justice because justice does demand a penalty. Well, the same is true for us. There must be a penalty paid for the wrongs we've done. Justice demands it. So what will Jesus say in our defense? 
When it's time for Jesus to speak, he will put forward the nails that pierced his hands and feet. He will put forward the cup of God's anger that he drank to the end. He will put forward the cross on which he was crucified. And he will simply say, the penalty has already been paid. This is what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. He is the priest who died for us and speaks for us. And that's amazing news to the rebel sinner who has come to his senses and surrendered to the king. But what if people refuse to surrender? Then they will meet Jesus as judge. And verses 5 to 7 are a sobering warning to anyone who would choose to meet him that way. Could you guys just take a moment and, and, and read those verses again uh, and notice how terrifying judgment will be? He will shatter the kings and the rulers of the earth. He will judge the nations and it will be merciless. He'll be relentless in executing judgment, pausing only to refresh himself from the brook before lifting his head to finish the job. Now, you might be thinking when I was reading the psalm this week, I was thinking, you know, why would anyone on earth root for a king like this? It's violent and offensive. Well, you may change your mind when you see who's on the list of enemies to be destroyed because 1 Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death, is death. When Jesus wins, there'll be no more death. Cancer will be a thing of the past, crushed beneath his feet. Dementia will be gone. Death will be swallowed up forever. Those are enemies we can all hate, and that's a victory everyone here can root for. But only those who have offered themselves to the king and accepted his pardon will share in the victory with him. Everyone else will be crushed beneath his feet. Now, I know the language in this psalm is graphic and possibly offensive, but I think the language is very deliberately graphic. It's meant to be a warning that shakes us out of our complacency. Now, humbly, if you're you're someone here and you haven't surrendered to Jesus, then please take this warning seriously. It's a terrifying thing to face the God of of the universe as an unforgiven enemy of the king. And that is what we are if we have not surrendered to him. So in conclusion, guys, which king do people want to meet? Do we want to meet? Do we want to meet Jesus as our judge? Or do we want to meet Jesus as our priest? One of the central claims of Christianity is that Jesus is the king described here in Psalm 110. And that's either true or false. Either he's king or he isn't. And one thing Christianity cannot be is a matter of preference. If it's true, then it's true whether people like it or not. And, when we, and we will meet this king one way or another. So the question we should be asking isn't do we like it, but rather the question we should be asking is, is it true? Is it true? In the very first sermon ever preached, the Apostle Peter tells us why we should believe it's true. Now I'm going to read to us from Acts 2, beginning at verse 32, which explains to us how we can know for certain that Jesus is the Psalm 110 king. So Peter says in Acts, this is Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 32. 
God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. And here's here's Psalm 110. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So how do we know that Jesus is the Psalm 110 king? Peter says we can know this for certain because God raised Jesus from the dead. And of this, he and several hundreds of others are witnesses. And if Jesus did rise from the dead, then he is both Lord and Christ. He is exalted at the right hand of God, and one day he will rule in judgment. We can be sure of this because God raised Jesus from the dead. But where do we see Jesus rule today? Because Peter seems to think that it's already happened, that it's a done deal. He says that God has made him Lord in Christ, not God will. Today, we see the rule of Jesus as Christians proclaim the gospel that Jesus is king. Today, we see the rule of Jesus as people believe the gospel and surrender to the king. Today, we see the rule of Jesus as hundreds and thousands of millions of people around the world bow to the knee of Jesus and and confess that he is king. Today, Jesus rules through his gospel. But one day, he will rule in judgment. And those who will not bow to the authority of the gospel will have to bow to the authority of judgment. One way or another, they will come face to face with the one who sits at the right hand of God. Either they will meet him as judge who puts us under his feet, or they will meet him as priest who speaks on their behalf. And the question I want to humbly leave us with is, which Jesus do we want to meet? Let's, let's close in prayer together.